0: Welcome back to the Arizona Wildlife Federation podcast. My name is Michael and I am your host. I have, I think, one of the most fascinating episodes I have recorded uh, for you today. Um, I am joined by two guests uh, that are an absolute world of knowledge on pollinating insects and you might be thinking to yourself you know what I'm not that interested in pollinating insects but I would ask you do you know what to do if you run into a colony of, of aggravated Africanized bees I didn't um, this this uh, this show answered so many questions I had about this this fascinating and giant world of insects um, and, you know, uh, really, all, all it did for me is, like, create more questions in my head. I could have talked to these gentlemen literally, you know, for eight hours straight and and still, you know, ha- had more questions. Uh, this is, I think, an absolutely fascinating episode, you know, uh, despite, you know, how you view uh, the, the world of insects. You know that everything we enjoy, our very lives, depend on on these foundational organisms and you're gonna learn all about why that is in this show. Alright, before we get to that, I just want to apologize for the lack or the the, the gap in, in programming here. I missed a couple weeks and that is due to an absolute egregious onslaught of bad public land bills that we are fighting against down at the state legislature. With that, if you enjoy the outdoors in Arizona, if you enjoy access to our vast, varied, and beautiful public lands, I would ask you to click down on the link in the show notes, educate yourself on these bills, and take action. By the time this show is published, These bills will likely be in the Senate, so I would ask you to contact your Senator and ask them to vote in opposition on these bills. Um, We should have a link available to make that easy for you, and if we don't have it up yet, by the time you listen to this, just keep looking, watch for messaging from the Arizona Wildlife Federation, whether that be social media or whatever, and please take action on these very misguided bills that do not represent Arizona's citizens all right one more announcement for you and this is a super exciting one I have reached my capacity in advocacy work for the Arizona Wildlife Federation we have outgrown by my, my ability to get all the work done therefore we are hiring an advocacy coordinator position this position is flexible at the moment we can talk about part-time we can talk about full-time But if you or anyone you know is a passionate wildlife enthusiast, a passionate sportsman, a passionate hiker, just passionate about our public lands and outdoors, please click on the link in the show notes. That will take you to the job description. Send me a resume. Send that job description to whoever you know that you think would be a good fit for this position. I'm super excited about it. And, uh, and look forward to growing our capacity to do good work for Arizona's wildlife habitat and public lands. All right. With that, I hope you enjoy the show. I certainly did. Um, again, just fascinating. It blew me away. I'll see you after the show. All right. We are, we are officially recording. It it took us a long time to get here and I appreciate your patience and I appreciate all the troubleshooting with some technical issues we had. But uh, let's jump right in to introductions and and Stephen we can start with you. Please tell us who you are, where you're from, um, you know some of your background and uh, how how you developed an interest in you know either insects and pollinators or just natural history in general. Yeah
1: hi my name is Stephen Buckman and I live in Tucson, Arizona. Uh, I started playing with bugs and fossils and collecting caterpillars and raising them into butterflies and moths in probably about the third grade. And by about high school, I was keeping honeybees and learning very poignantly that you should never, ever work honeybee colonies wearing black socks, short pants on a drizzly, rainy day. Uh, because they don't like it, and they let you know. <laughs> um, after that, I did my uh, bachelor's in biological science at Cal State Fullerton in Orange County in Southern California. Also did my master's there, and then went up to University of California at Davis for my doctorate in entomology. And wow, since 1979, I've been a Tucson resident and a uh, adjunct professor in two departments at the University of Arizona. I'm in entomology as well as uh, the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology. I consider myself a pollination ecologist, so that means that I study the behavioral and physical interactions between bees and other pollinators and plants, both uh, native wildflowers and crop plants although I prefer working on native uh, ground nesting solitary bees um, and and uh, their
0: native host plants that sort of thing yeah that is one of the things that I love so much about the natural sciences is that you can go down rabbit holes like ground nesting bees um, and and never learn everything you know spend a lifetime on it and just never never fully get it all um, so you know there's there's a whole World of fascinating uh, (laughs) rabbit holes to go down out there. Um, And I I just love that. But all right, Bruce, how about you? Well, I grew up in Wisconsin. I was kind of a rural boy. Um,
2: I'm the kid that came home with snakes and bugs in their pocket when I was about Steve's age of three or four. Uh, Let me see. Graduated from high school, and I was a machinist for several years after graduating from high school. I went to kind of a polytech high school. Got drafted, got home from the service, and decided to start college. So I did nine straight years, got my bachelor's, master's, and Ph.D. in uh, wildlife sciences. Worked uh, For most of my research, I worked on um, fish. So I'm basically a fisheries biologist. Then in then I did some postdoctoral work uh, at the uh, University of Illinois, and then I went to Africa for a while to set up some fisheries labs in Africa. Uh, got back, started a family, and figured I needed to make some real money, so I came to Arizona. I was the chief of fisheries in Arizona in 1981. A few years later, I advanced to the uh, assistant director for wildlife management. Division, which has the game branch, the fish branch, uh, let me see, habitat branch, research branch, and non-game branches within their purview. So I basically supervise those five branches for the agency. Lucky enough to travel all over the world doing work on CITES, Convention on um, International Trade and Endangered Species. Worked on the Ramsar Convention, which is the convention for the work on wetlands worldwide. Um, just did a whole bunch of things. And, and for some reason, I fell in love with bees. My, my mother was a photographer, so I remember helping her. She was a wedding photographer. I absolutely hated wedding photographers. Either, either the, the, the new husband didn't like the new wife or their in-laws didn't like each other. Everybody got drunk. So it was a terrible thing to do, but I did wedding photos with her for a while. And then uh, about 50, oh, maybe 20, 25 years ago, I started getting really serious about photography. So I retired early 2000s from Game and Fish. I've been a wildlife photographer since then. I met Steve five, six years ago and started photographing bees. And as a biologist, I got really interested in their life history, so I... I advanced my skills in our life history and hopefully my skills as a as a bee photographer. So that may be enough.
0: Well, Bruce, uh I I, I share your your disinterest with wedding photography as I did that for five years of five years <laughs> oh, too no. many of of my life. Uh yeah, it's uh <laughs> yeah it's rough. It's a you know the problem with photography and, and you know I got into wildlife photography and I did it for a decade. Um, you know, in my primary my primary subjects were things that lived under rocks, salamanders, snakes, turtles, lizards, things like that. And, uh, but the problem is you learn how to use a camera and then you get somehow soaked into like shooting seniors in high schools and weddings and things like that. And quite for me, it, it, I should have, I should have just stopped because it kind of ruined photography for me. You know, it, you know, a weekend would roll around and I didn't want to pick up the camera and take it out anymore. Yeah. But, um, yeah, but it is something that I loved for a long time and I've got a whole giant collection of, of critter photographs and, you know, that I don't know what to do with at this point, but they, <laughs> they live on Flickr and I show them off to folks from time to time. But um, you know, for me, it was more a love of the, the animal than it was a love of photography. So therefore when I threw people into the mix, it just didn't work out, but. All right. So, um, and I'll throw this at both of you, but. Just uh, to kind of set the stage or lay a foundation, assuming that the, some of the folks that are listening have no idea why insects are important and all they know is they're a pest when they're out camping and they don't enjoy them at all, they don't want them in their house. Why are insects, or in this case, pollinators, important?
1: If your listeners like to eat, they should think about and conserve and protect pollinators because literally our global diet, about a third of it comes to us directly or indirectly through the pollinating activity of insects. I mean, everything from flies to wasps to beetles, butterflies, moths, and especially our champion heroines of pollination, the female bees. Um, It really does create our our diet and for wildlife too. think about, uh, Bruce can talk about this later, but bears and other wildlife chowing down on berries to fatten up for their overwintering. Um, So you have pollinators that are carrying pollen grains, the uh, gametophyte, basically the little, you can think of them as like a ping pong ball filled with two sperm cells and those need to go from plant to plant. Uh, it's better, much better, if the pollen grains go go to an uh, unrelated plant and you get uh, better seed set and fitter offspring. It's kind of like the reason you don't want to marry your first cousin. Uh, you have some bad genetics happening there. Um, so pollinators are these incredible go-betweens that... in the case of bees, they have branched hairs, almost like um, bird feathers, not quite, but they are branched. And in those little interstices, they carry the pollen grains. So bees are literally leaving little dirty footprints on flowers as they go looking for food for themselves or their larvae. Sugar-rich, high-energy nectar or protein and fatty pollen to feed their brood. But you know a female bee doesn't get up in the morning, look at her do, to-do list and go, oh no, I've got to pollinate 10,000 flowers today. No, they're simply out to feed themselves and their progeny. And for us, pollination is a really lucky accident. We wouldn't be here without it.
2: For most of you listening, I assume that you have an interest in hunting, fishing, wildlife management, bird watching, wildlife conservation, and if it literally, if it weren't for pollinators, you wouldn't have those animals to enjoy. If you think of it, the Sonoran Desert is about 10,000 years old, and these plants and animals over that period of time, maybe even longer, have evolved together, and deer are Browsers, elk are grazers, um, prairie dogs are grazers, uh, hawks and raptors are predators. And if you follow that far enough down the food chain, if you eliminate pollinators or pollinators have trouble, it goes right up the food chain and all those other animals are going to have trouble. So, from a, from a perspective of just enjoying those animals, you can enjoy them. You can go out and you can put quail habitat galore in to try to increase quail populations. But unless you take care of the pollinators that keep those wild lands healthy, those wild plants healthy, it really doesn't do you any good to save a hundred thousand acres for quail unless you've got enough pollinators to take care of that hundred thousand acres. So it's absolutely vitally important to those of us that enjoy the larger animals to make sure that we aid and protect those, the pollinators and the smaller animals.
0: Yeah. So to summarize, you know, what we're talking about here today is the very foundation of everything that we enjoy in our outdoors. Pretty much. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, let me, let me throw this one at you, fellas. Uh, when I was a child growing up back East, I would go out on a summer night underneath uh, our, our street light. And the diversity and number of insects was just astounding. And, of course, you know, I would collect them and look at them and and just wonder about them. And I I would further that with, you know, our windshields in the summertime were constantly smeared in insects. Now, while there's still plenty of bugs uh, back east and too many, some might argue, it's my observation that those numbers and diversity are not what I remember as a child is not there. Now that might be a, a glitch in my memory, just, you know, fond memories of childhood being more grandiose than what they really were. But it, would you, would you say that observation is accurate? And if it is, what, what has led to this?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I would say so for sure. Uh, my casual observations, as well as people around the world monitoring insects in a systematic Fashion. Um, We know that uh, dark skies have been eliminated for much of the planet, and we have huge numbers of external artificial lights. Um, You know, naturalists and scientists have wondered, I mean, this probably goes back millennia, you know, essentially the moth to the flame. And in fact, there was just a paper published about a month ago uh, where some researchers demonstrated in the uh, tropics of Costa Rica, they set up some artificial lighting and some high-speed infrared cameras that when moths and other pollinators came near the bright light, they turned over and they wanted to keep their backs to the light. So this explains this age-old question of insects, moths, and and wasps, and sometimes bees get trapped in a bright light source, and then they land, and then guess what? They're food for critters like birds and skunks, maybe, uh, that night or the next morning. Um, So when you, as a child, looked at bright lights and saw swarms of insects, and now they're decreasing, that that is definitely a valid observation. Um, also, it's not just light pollution. I mean, we, we've put out just thousands and thousands of different agrochemicals and turf grass control for, pesticide, for, for pests around our homes. And that's crashed insect populations. Um, it's interesting that you mentioned the, the gunk on the windshield, right? People complain about all the insects splatting into their windshield. Cars become almost like giant filter feeding organisms that are taking this aerial plankton out of the uh, environment. And when you think of it, I, I, I'd be willing to, get, to, to venture that Roads, the thousands and thousands of miles of roadways in the United States are probably killing just as many, if not perhaps more, beneficial insects, including pollinators, uh, than our than our pesticides. And people just don't don't realize it. Um, people in England uh, did a study where they put sticky cards. Uh, basically, tanglefoot on little cardboard cards on the front of cars and trucks, and drove them around at for a set distance and a at a known speed, and calculated how how many insects were were taken out, and uh, that was done over a period of I, I can't remember how many years separated it, but they definitely saw some declines, and they used this sort of funny method of, of catching insects then identifying what was caught and how many. But yeah, your observations are, are right on. Uh, we are losing our insects through many, many human-caused factors.
2: Let me, let, let me give a little, uh, from a different angle, the same reasoning. I came to Arizona in 1981. It's a long time ago. And that was, in 81, it was the Pleistocene. For those of you who don't know, the Pleistocene was a very wet period of time. So in Arizona, it was very wet in the 80s. I was a hero. We had quail everywhere. We had deer everywhere. Game and fish could do no wrong. I mean, seasons were liberal, lots of animals to harvest, the lakes were full, life was good. Since the 80s, late 80s it started, we've had this incredible drought and the drought, you know, you can go outside one day and say, oh, I got 3.1 inches in my backyard this year. And I can say, oh, the drought's over. Well, that's not true. The drought's a long-term thing. It, what it does is it, it, the, the lack of water takes all the energy out of the roots of plants, and the, and the plants are not able to replenish themselves and be healthy, and eventually they go down, certainly the ponderosa pines, grasses, everything. So over these 45 years, we've had a drought. Quail populations are down, deer populations are down, bird populations are down, grasses are down. We've lost a lot of grasses. The, the desert is becoming drier, and that has the same exact impact on invertebrates. Invertebrate populations, pollinators are way down. I've got a lot of good friends that, that work in this field, and to a person, they'll tell me that insect populations, pollinator populations are, are, are down. And these, these are, are lay people that are, that are just interested, but they've been in the field for 50 years. They know what's going on. There are scientists like Steve that's been doing this for 50 years, and he tells me that they're down. So there, there's absolutely no doubt that the, that the lack of rainfall in the desert southwest has impacted, impacted um, invertebrate populations. And if you compound that with I don't know in your neighborhood, but the creosote flats are going to heck in a handbasket. As much as I love solar energy, solar energy eats up tens of thousands of acres of creosote. Houses eat up tens of thousands of acres of creosote. Roads eat up tens of thousands of acres of creosote, ponderosa pine, all sorts of habitats. So habitats diminishing, water's going down. It's a no-brainer. Insect populations are way down.
1: Yeah, Bruce mentions a really good point about drought. We've got this decades-long drought. And interestingly, about the, the humble creosote bush, Laria tridentata, it covers tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of acres in the American Southwest, in the Mojave Desert of California, in the Sonoran Desert, and then down into Sonora, Mexico proper. Um Studies by my colleagues have indicated that when you look at the bees, the native mostly ground and twig nesting bees that pollinate creosote, and there are some generalists and there are some specialists that only during their lifetime collect nectar and pollen from just creosote. And you will remember for those of you who live here in Arizona, that creosote blooms typically twice a year. It has a spring bloom, and then a second bloom during the uh, summer monsoons. 125 species of native bees have been recorded going to creosote Mm -hmm. flowers. So this plant that most people don't even consider, uh, you know, well, it's a shrub, but a, a wildflower or a resource for pollinators is a Super valuable one because here it's supporting over a hundred different native bees. And if that plant were to stop blooming or uh, goes under the blade of the D9 cat uh, and it gets, you know, eradicated, then that's much less food resource for these different native bees, wasps, flies, and butterflies.
0: Wow. Well, I can tell you, I expected. I expected to hear about pesticides. I did not expect to hear about light pollution. I did not expect to hear about filter feeding cars, uh, <laughs> eating aerial plankton. Um, and I should have expected to hear about a changing climate. Um, but yeah, now that you've opened my eyes to these these things, especially the car one really strikes me. And I never considered that it, an impactful thing on insect populations, but yeah. Holy hell. Unintended. Of is. I, I hadn't considered it though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There you go. Um, all right. So that, that's a depressing, depressing way to start the show <laughs> off, but, uh, absolutely important. And it's exactly why, why you, you gentlemen are here. Um, yeah, it's a complicated thing, you know, under that note on solar, clearly we need to transition to clean energy sources as, as on, throughout the globe. But boy, trying, you know, some of the work we do here at Arizona Wildlife Federation is, is you know, it, it doesn't just affect, you know, pollinating insects and creosote bushes, but it, it, it affects large game migrations um, and wildlife corridors and things like that. So, so we, we work on this as well. And, and we're ramping up our work on this to try to make sure these. These energy companies are are doing this in in the best way possible, which is hard because the best way possible is not always the most uh, cost efficient way possible, but uh, it's complicated stuff, boy, you know, I mean, we we need to do this, but gosh, we really got to try to do it right with as little impact as we possibly can and lots of work to do there, though um uh, before before i moved on i'm, I'm going to derail us here because i just had a question for you steven that that popped into my head and i don't want to forget i know your interest is primarily in in native bees but does your your interest in pollinators has that ever taken you down into looking at our, uh, our pollinating bats here in arizona
1: yeah i've been involved with a few projects with uh bat biologists notably uh Dr. Ted Fleming, who was a professor at the University of Miami, who's now retired in Tucson, he's an authority on the uh, uh, lesser long-nosed bats, and I can't remember the common name for the other one, the Chironictorus, which is the Mexican long-tongued bat. So both of these have migration patterns that start in Sonora, uh, Mexico, and there are maternal birthing caves where the females hang up and give birth and then they go out and forage early on. They're actually carrying their, their babies with them on the foraging trips. And we, we published a few papers on the pollination of the giant columnar cactus, uh, Cardone, uh, near Aquino Bay in Sonora. And Ted Fleming has done most of that work, but um, it's pretty amazing to watch those bats come into either man-made feeders or better yet, giant uh, paniculat agaves, the century plants or the saguaro or the cardones. I mean, they do not they don't hover like hummingbirds. They just kind of come in for less than a second and <clears throat> hit those flowers and then take off. But much like bees, they get blasted with pollen. So if you look at their muzzle on their face, they uh, get either sort of cream-colored saguaro pollen on them or yellow agave pollen. And then when they move, great distances can be even 10 or 20 kilometers often between their roost and their foraging sites. They're moving this pollen around as uh, dedicated, faithful pollinators to these plants. So yeah, the bats are the bats are amazing. Uh, what what um, happened a few decades ago is that people, I think in southeastern Arizona, maybe around Sierra Vista, and then eventually up around Tucson, birders, you know, hummingbird watchers would want to get ready for the next morning, and they'd fill up their sugar feeders with sugar water, hang it up on their porch or whatever, and the next morning they come out to be ready to enjoy or, or photograph the hummingbirds and go, oh, what the heck? The feeder's empty. What happened? And a few people started realizing that, hey, these bats are super intelligent animals and they had memorized and they have these trap lines. And so they were running the trap lines and draining the feeders. So they were the, the mystery culprit uh, behind the empty hummingbird sugar feeders.
2: There's a, Michael, there's a real success story with, with at least the lesser long-nose the, um It was originally listed on the inda- Federal Endangered Species Act as threatened, not endangered, but threatened. And we weren't really quite sure why, but mainly through the work of the Arizona Game and Fish Department through gr- uh, federal grants and state grants, jointly with the universities and uh, the country of Mexico we were able to census lesser long-nosed bats to the point where they were, just a few years ago, they were taken off the endangered species list. So we were able to find out that there are sufficient numbers of them that they didn't really need all of those protections from the Endangered Species Act. So Game and Fish not only gets involved with larger animals that you might hunt and fish and watch, they also get involved with maintaining populations of all wildlife, including pollinators like uh like bats
0: that that's wonderful that's always welcome news to see something removed from from that list um steven you mentioned Kino. i stopped in uh in Kino, mexico to see the uh the blue collared lizards down there um and i do forget i, I think the epithet is dickerson eye um but uh but yeah I, I don't i don't even remember the common name but they're such an outstanding species. You know, a big male in his breeding colors is just something you would not expect to see in nature. And those big columnar cactuses are are quite a sight as well. Special place. And we're lucky to be so close to all that. All right. So I I feel like most folks out there do not realize that what we consider our honeybee um, is actually an exotic species. Um, And with that, you know, I don't think people realize there's the diversity of native bees that we have as well. So so I'd like to to I'd like for you gentlemen to, to parse that out, you know, explain what the, the exotic honeybee is and then then tell us a bit about our our native bees. And uh, maybe the competition between those species are are perhaps species that we might have lost that we didn't even know we had when when the European honeybee got here. I don't know. That was a lot, I realize, but parse it out however you like.
1: Yeah, I mean, the honeybee, the Western honeybee, Apis mellifera, and its various subspecies are, have only been around in the U.S. You know, since the Jamestown colonists brought a few colonies in. And then they started spreading east to west. Uh, indigenous tribes noticed them. I mean, there was no real sugary treat like that, but they, the, the, the one I'm reminded of is the Cherokee nation. They had this term for the honeybees that they saw showing up in their forests and they called them white man's flies. So just ahead of the colonists, they would notice that these <laughs> stinging, but sweet honeybees, uh, were coming into their territory. Uh, similarly in the West, uh, about the time of the, uh, gold rush, 1850s. We had some of our first uh, honeybees brought in in barrels over on buckboards from California to Arizona. And I think that perhaps even earlier, we had uh, honeybees that were starting out from around Mexico City with the Spaniards, and they probably migrated northward on their own. So we might have actually had honeybees before the gold rush, just with honeybees migrating from south to north. They are extreme generalists. You can think of a honeybee colony as being essentially immortal. If the bees keep replacing those queens, uh, I I have evidence for some feral honeybee colonies that have been in the same place for decades. Those those bees are foraging over many square kilometers. I think the world record for a bee flight distance foraging distance is 14 kilometers from the nest. Um, But they generally fly only a few kilometers, so probably a mile or two from their nest. But they're interacting with And because of their famous waggle dance, scouts go out, they find rich sources of nectar and pollen. They come back, they inform the colony, and then you get this flush of thousands or tens of thousands of foragers leaving the colony. And they really take down what we call the standing crop of nectar and pollen. So they're taking it away from the mouths of literally many, many native bees and other pollinators. And since they are such generalists, uh, I know I've done some pollen studies over the years where we've documented about 25% of the local bloom is visited and harvested by honeybees. And to put put that in perspective, west of me in the Tucson mountains, uh, my botanist buddies tell me there are about 500 to 600 native species of wildflowers in those mountains. Now they don't bloom every year. You may not see some of them for 20 or 30 years because they're living dormant as a seed bank in the soil. But just think of that, that honeybees are touching the lives of, for good or bad, about 25% of the native plants. So they're competing with food. uh, And then maybe we'll touch on this later, but honeybees are also spreading different bacterial and viral disease organisms to other bees, bumblebees and some other native bees.
2: I don't know where where that question wanted to go, but as an outdoorsman, there's probably fewer things that I'm more afraid of than honeybees. I, they are, and friends of mine are in the same boat. I mean, I'm not a of bears and mountain lions and things like that but when I'm hiking and I hear this bzzz, this huge drone of noise coming closer and closer, I'm scared to death because you know they've been Africanized they're a, a bit protective of their bee colony which they should be and um, I, I'm worried about getting stung out there in the desert and being left for um, for vulture food so uh, <laughs> Native bees, on on the other hand, I I, I don't have that fear of. They don't tend to swarm other than when they're breeding Uh, in those numbers. I've not ever – I've been stung a lot by honeybees. I've been stung by two native bees, and that's because because Steve took me in and said, get closer to them and photograph them. And I managed to get stung by a female. The the males really don't even have stingers, so they're not going to hurt me. But, um, yeah, yeah, I I mean – I have a love hate relationship with honeybees. They they do a lot of really, really good things. And without honeybees, we would be in trouble, but there's also the flip side of that. You know, Steve mentioned the competition with natives, but also I, as a, as an outdoor person, you really do need to beware and be and, and, of, of big colonies and hives of honeybees.
0: Well, I'm glad you mentioned that Bruce, because that that's always been in the back of my mind when I'm out there walking desert washes and stuff and come across a big colony. Um, and, you know, I was I, I meant to ask you, gentlemen, because I don't know, you know, things get exaggerated um, and and I, I wasn't sure, you know, of how, how much threat there really was there. I know a couple seems like a couple people die every year uh, from from attacks by Africanized bees. But can, can you tell me a little bit more about them? And when you say Africanized, you know, is that a, a completely different species that is hybridized and? why do they only occur in, in Southern regions? In and, and maybe if, if you know, what are some precautions folks could take to keep themselves safe or, or how do you react, you know, if you are faced with a situation like that in, in the outdoors?
1: Yeah. We've for, for several decades now had Africanized honeybees in Arizona and Southern California and most of the Southern tier of States in the U S um, They were an experiment gone awry. Um, Famous Brazilian geneticist, Warwick Kerr, traveled to South Africa, and he was looking for honeybees that were super productive and not wimps about defending their colonies. So he brought back 26 colonies, I think, to the area of Brazil near Sao Paulo, and then was a year or two, this was 1956, he was a year or two into his studies trying to breed them so that they were less defensive of their nests. And about a year or so later, he was on a short vacation. It's not really clear what happened, but a technician or a visiting scientist saw these funny Queen excluders on the front of the colonies and on the hive boxes, and thought, wow, Care, what an idiot, you know, what is he doing with those, and ripped them all off. And long story short, those 26 African queens went out into the uh, Brazilian rainforest and savannas, uh, unfortunately, uh, not never to be heard from again, but they started migrating at a rate of about a hundred or more miles per year, um, going north, and they hit Brownsville, Texas, and then they they spread out. Um, th- it's not that they're have longer stingers or more venom. Actually, Africanized bees, scientifically known as Apis mellifera scutellata subspecies, um, they don't have more venom per bee, but it's because they get riled up and they're so defensive um, that you get more stings. Um, My late great friend, Justin Schmidt, who passed away about a year ago, was the world's expert on venom and stinging bees, and he calculated the lethal dose, the LD50, for them. And um, it's... It's quite a bit. I mean, a healthy adult, maybe somebody in their 20s might be able to withstand somewhere between two and 400 stings, but um, that's about the limit. So most people are afraid that that buzzing insect that flies by them is going to give them one sting and they're going to die. But unless you have, um, unless you're allergic to, and you go into anaphylactic shock, that's not really a danger. There, there are some warning signs. If you're out hiking with a buddy and someone gets stung and they start to have a bit of nausea, they have some difficulty breathing, then that's a real warning sign that you need to get that person to a Emergency room within an hour or so because that those are some of the the symptoms of anaphylactic shock. Um, the things you can do are to be wary when you're walking around if you see a lot of two-way traffic, a lot of honeybees going in and out of a hole in the ground because they typically nest in the ground. Uh, give them a wide berth. Uh, often honeybees will give you kind of a warning shot. They'll fly near you without stinging they might buzz around your head for a few minutes before uh, you get stung Um, the important thing to do is to protect your face the stimuli that set the beads off bees off are uh, rapid movement dark colors don't don't want to be wearing a black t-shirt and then the co2 in our exhaled breath Uh, One thing you can do is to dive under your shirt and look out through your shirt as you're walking fast, or if you can, in an area without too many rocks. I mean, you just need to get away from the nest. Put as much distance as you can between you and the nest. Um, People get freaked out when they see a giant black cloud of bees flying over the desert. That's a reproductive swarm. Uh, that actually is not the time to be afraid of them because they're literally engorged with honey and they physically can't sting. So it may be a bit unnerving, but you're far more danger being five or 10 feet away from uh, a feral colony of Africanized bees in the rocks. So anyway, those those are some ideas about staying safe from Africanized bees.
2: Yeah, well, most often my key to being coming alert is the noise from the colony. If I'm hiking a a trail in the mountains and I can hear this drone, this high pitched noise, then I I'm going to reroute myself because I know something's going to happen. I found a huge colony in a Saguaro one night. I was photographing elf owls and I went up to it and looked at it. I said, that's the nighttime. They're not going to bother me enough. And I was within three or four feet and the drone, the noise just kept on increasing and increasing and increasing and the hive became more active. And I just left. So I think, you know, Steve's right. They're not, they're, they're not out there looking for you. And I don't think you're in that much of a danger, but the way I hike around mountains and do things, I'm always aware that if I hear this noise, I need to figure out an exit route and and, and get out of the way. Cause I, I, I'm, Frank, I think they can be, what do you think, Steve, reasonably dangerous if you get into a a desert hive.
1: Yeah, and I I don't know the exact number of human fatalities in Arizona due to Africanized bees. Probably something on the order of maybe a dozen to 15 or 20 people. Uh, Far more stinging deaths to livestock and pets. You know, a dog is tied up in the backyard and can't get away um, yeah so that that is a that is a danger so you need to give them a wide berth I, I do want to say one thing that I forgot to say earlier but I mean honeybees there are pros and cons they have they are a threat to as a competitor for food and disease transmitter with our native pollinators but they're also, the queen bee, literally, (laughs) the queen of our agricultural pollination. So they can be moved around in those funny white boxes, the Civil War technology, the Langstroth hive, to crops that require pollination on demand. We don't really have a lot of native bees that have been, quote, domesticated, unquote, that are used for pollination. Uh, Yes, we have bumblebees for greenhouse tomatoes, We have orchard mason bees, the bobs, the blue orchard bees for um, sweet cherry pollination and that sort of thing. And the probably $5 billion worth of alfalfa in the United States that's grown for either hay or alfalfa seed is pretty much pollinated by a little tiny European immigrant, the uh, alfalfa leafcutter bee. Megachyle rotundata. So we have a few native bees and a couple of introduced ones other than honeybees that are pollinators, but pretty much honeybees are the champion pollinator for
0: most of the world's crops. Well, let me hit you with just two more questions on on these Africanized bees. They're kind of a sexy topic in the insect world, you know. Um, One, can you outrun a hive if given space and terrain to do so? And two, are there any morphological differences in an Africanized bee and just a European honeybee?
1: Uh, No and yes. Uh, Honeybees fly at 15 miles per hour. So unless you're an Olympic sprinter and can keep up with that speed for a long time, no, you can't really outrun them. You know, so you need to... Oh, one thing I didn't say is that you can escape them by getting back into your vehicle, get into your car or truck or get into your house. Uh, One thing you don't want to do is jump into a swimming pool because when you are holding your breath and then you come up for air, uh, the bees are there. They can outlast you. So don't go into a swimming pool. (laughs) Um, I'm sorry. The second part of, oh, oh yeah. The, the, uh, can you tell the difference? Morphologically there's no real difference between the Western honeybee and Africanized bees, except for their size. The Africanized bees are actually about 10 to 15% smaller. And if you're a scientist with a microscope, you can do some morphometrics and measure a whole bunch of wing venation and wing angles, and you can run it through a computer program and tell that way. But the average person, no. Um, one of my buddies at the old uh, Carl Hayden Bee Research Center in Tucson used to say, well, you just give them the Nike test. You uh, kick the colony and then you run like hell. So they, they are very sensitive to vibration. So if you throw a rock at a hive, never do that, uh, they'll explode out of there. So they're really sensitive to vibration. A lot of the uh, human fatalities in Tucson have been due to somebody like running a power, gas, lawn mower too close to a
0: underground feral honeybee colony, and they explode out. All right. Well, can you can you tell us a little bit more about some of our our native bees? I mean, are are they are the species regionally specific, habitat specific? I, I literally know nothing about them, or, or would even be able to recognize a, a native bee if I saw one.
1: The, we in Arizona we have almost eleven hundred species of native bees, and they are typically solitary. They're not social, so that these are females that will find a good patch of soil, uh, usually close to their flowering host plant, and they'll dig down, you know, anything from maybe five or ten centimeters down to sometimes a meter, but that would be pretty extreme. And they, they go out and they provision individual cells with usually a little pea-sized and shaped ball of pollen mixed with nectar. And then they lay an egg on it, they seal it up, and then they'll go make usually several more cells per nest, Uh, bury and camouflage that, and then go make several more nests during their lifetime. But that's called mass provisioning. So honeybees make hundreds or thousands of feeding trips, uh, babysitting basically to the open cell where there's a hungry grub, a bee larva in the bottom of it, and the nurse bees feed it um, a secretion from the hypopharyngeal gland, the brood food glands, or just pollen and honey. And then eventually that cell is uh, capped off. Uh, The brood is capped. And that's called progressive provisioning. But most of the world's bees are mass provision. So basically, mom goes out and makes dozens or more foraging trips, goes grocery shopping out in nature, brings the goodies back home, seals it up and says, hey, good luck, kid, you're on your own. So they never see their uh, offspring. There are some bees that we have that are social, like bumblebees and carpenter bees, where there's some overlap of generations. But um, by and large, those solitary bees that we have in Arizona do that. Um, We live, we're lucky to live in Arizona because this is a biodiversity hotspot for bees. Uh, about 4,000 species of bees in the United States, about 20,000 described species around the world. And the only other place that's as rich for bees are, uh, well, for example, there's a bee hotspot in the Mediterranean region and then also uh, South Africa, a few places like that. But basically, Arizona has more bees more kinds of bees than any other state in the U.S. except for California. So we come in number two.
2: Just a couple of things I wanted to add. We're lucky in Arizona for living here for a whole bunch of reasons. And one we're not only high in biodiversity for bees, we're the number three most biodiverse state in all of the states. So we have more species of plants and animals and things than all the states other than Texas and, and California. And that's because they've got that coastline so they kind of beat us out with the coastline with coastal birds and things like that. So Arizona is a very biod- biodiverse state. The other thing I wanted to mention is not back to the not not another discussion of the africanized bees, but a discussion of when you see wild bees. The the foraging wild bees are going to be females and they have the ability to sting you, but they're not out there in mass. They're out there very few individuals. But a few years ago we were lucky enough, uh, Steve was lucky enough to have a, a person call him and tell him that they had this huge number of these red, beautiful red-faced uh, centrist bees on their property. And they wanted they, they, they went through the Department of Ag first to try to find out what to do with them. And I think in their mind, they were worried that they, that they were dangerous to them, where there are literally thousands of small holes in the ground that the females were going into to, to lay their nests that, that Steve was talking about, and the key there is that 99.9 percent of the bees that you see in a big, I'll call it a colony, although that's probably wrong, in a huge colony like that, are males that are incapable of stinging. The females are are there coming in and out to provision the nests, and they're very unlike these honey other the the, the uh, honey bees. They're not going to bother you, even if they're on your property if you see, or if you're out hiking and you see thousands and thousands of holes in the ground, little bitty tubes in the holes, little bitty mounds around the holes. Don't be afraid of those. Don't go in and destroy them. Don't hurt them. Just watch them, enjoy them, have a good time, and, and walk on and, and leave them alone. They're very, dis- very different habitat, um, habits than, than the, uh, the uh, honey, Africanized honeybees.
0: So, when referring to stingers uh, and people getting stung, can you can you explain exactly what the stinger is and and why that is is different between the sexes? Sure, as Bruce mentioned already, only the
1: only the females have the stingers. the The males don't, so uh, can have some good party tricks where you hold a male bee and it's trying to fake, jab, sting you, and it's not really stinging you because it doesn't have that equipment. Uh, during their evolutionary history, the hymenoptera, the bees, ants, and wasps, the so-called stinging hymenoptera, what we call the aculeates, it in the deep time of their evolutionary history, the stinger was originally an egg-laying tube, and the ancestors of these um, wasps were inserting an egg into a plant. And we still have some of these things around. They're called sawflies. Um, So this ovipositor, this egg-laying tube, gradually took on a defensive uh, function. So the, now the egg comes out at the base of the sting, but you have these, uh, it's often multiple parted, like sort of three lancets that are somewhat fused together. And in the case of the honeybee, the sting tip is barbed. So uh, the sting sticks in you. Uh, the honeybee stinger is an amazing, amazing thing. It's like this little remote-controlled robot. So if you have the presence of mind the next time you're stung by a honeybee, take out your hand lens and watch the thing pump that venom into you. So the, the stinger is like a syringe, and it has a little storage tank for the venom, and it has muscles to pump the venom. And even stranger, after that stinger breaks off in the honeybees, uh, the genus Apis, with about seven or eight species worldwide. It's one of the very, very few bees where the stinger actually breaks off. Um, if you grab a bumblebee and are holding it, that female can sting you as many times as you let it before you let it go. Not in the case of the honeybee because those barbs catch in the sting and it basically, kind of a bad story for the bee, doesn't die instantly, it may take, hours or even a day, but it eviscerates the bee and some of the hindgut comes out with it. But it has a little brain in that remote robot. So the last intersegmental ganglion, the little collection of nerve fibers, which is not the brain in the head, but is in each segment of the abdomen, that comes off. And so you have the nervous system basically Telling that muscle to fire and contract, so it's pretty amazing. I, I tell people if you're stung by a bee, take a credit card or a pocket knife or a fingernail, and if you scrape the stinger out within a second or two, you only get a fraction of the venom that's
0: delivered. Wow, you know, I would say it's fascinating. Is as, as that you know evolved mechanism is in the honeybee stinger, I would say that it doesn't hold a candle to some of the downright morbid and fascinating parasitic behaviors of wasps. And I would say that that's an entire podcast in itself. So we don't have to get into all those, but I'll tell you they're dark and creepy. Um, Do any of the bees act as parasites or have any, any similar behaviors?
1: Yeah, actually around the world are those 20,000 species of describe bees, we have about 10% that are called uh, cuckoo bees, not because they're crazy, but they're shorthand for kleptoparasitic. So those bees don't have the shaggy hind legs where they usually carry the pollen grains, so they don't really transport pollen to feed the young. They're using the same strategy as in the bird world, like a cowbird will wait until the mother is away from the nest and then uh, sneak an egg into the nest. And that's exactly what these kleptoparasitic female bees do. They wait until mom is out of the house. They go down there, <clears throat> lay an egg, and they sometimes hide it in the wall or under the pollen. So usually when the correct homeowner comes back. She doesn't recognize that her nest has been invaded. And uh, anyway, the cell gets sealed up. Some of these bees are pretty gruesome. These bee larvae, they have giant ice tongue like mandibles. And their first mission in life is to seek out the egg or larva of the host and kill it, eat it. And then they eat all that stored food that the female left. So yeah, 10% of the world's bees are
0: parasites. Interesting. Well, I'll tell you what, for folks listening who, you know, are wondering what the, you know, wondering more about this, uh, there was a book I read years ago. I forget the author. Maybe one of you gentlemen will know it, but it was called Parasite Rex. And it just, it blew my mind. uh, Some of the, some of these behaviors that are out there in the natural world that almost seem just, just crazy. But so I would recommend looking that up and giving it a read because it was a good one. Um, Well, if you don't mind, I, I'd like to, you know, I, I realize that Stephen, you're, you're a, a bee scientist, and, and Bruce, you're, you're certainly a bee enthusiast, I suppose. Um, but I'd like to move on. Uh, I, I su- I, I'm willing to bet you gentlemen know a lot about monarchs. Um, and people talk a lot about monarch butterflies and, and the plight that they're in. So I, I, I'm curious, you know, you, some things, get exaggerated, um, and, and, and perhaps not, but but I hear on one end of things, and this being a subject I've not researched myself, but I hear monarchs are in peril. And then I've, I've heard also that that could be a bit exaggerated, and they're doing okay. And now I realize all biodiversity, with the exception of perhaps Homo sapien and, and a few others, is, is in decline. But is there uh, an, an issue with monarchs right now? And if so, can you can you talk about it a bit? Yeah, it's kind of multifaceted. We hear most about the
1: threats to monarchs in Mexico. And that's because most of the population of monarch butterflies in Canada and the U.S., east of the Mississippi River, go in a, in a multi-generational, it's not a single generation, but a multi-generational migration from Canada and the U.S. down into Mexico. And in the state of, the mountainous state of Michoacan, north of Mexico City, are the sacred oyamel trees, the conifers, the forest at high elevation. And for whatever reason, that is a microclimate that even though it's harsh, it's somewhat better than some of the other areas. And the monarchs congregate there in just a few acres, which are diminishing every year due to illegal uh, timber harvest of these trees. So even though there are some protected uh, monarch sanctuaries, uh, El Rosario, Angangueo, some of these, I visited them many years ago with my fellow Uh, naturalist and author and friend, Gary Nabham. And um, the, the monarchs are landing on the trees, and there are so many butterflies, you can't even see the trees. And we don't normally think of butterflies as noisy animals, right? But when they take flight, you can hear them, the millions of them. It's like being enveloped in a butterfly snowstorm. Um, my, my very first book back in 1996 was called The Forgotten Pollinators, and I co-wrote that with Gary. And we talk about our experiences in the uh, forests of, of Mexico. Now, in the United States, along their migratory journey, monarchs are being impacted by several things. They're losing their Food plants, they eat milkweeds. The caterpillars eat milkweeds. If you ever see a, a monarch caterpillar, it has stripes of black, green, and white. And it's, it's called a warning coloration because as they feed on the milkweeds, they sequester within their body tissues cardiac glycosides, heart poisons. And so these are dangerous for vertebrates. So usually a bird will eat like one Monarch caterpillar and it throws up and it remembers that. So not usually killed, but it's a bad experience. Um, monarchs are also being impacted by agrochemicals. And one of the worst is Roundup, right? Glyph- glyphosate. So Roundup ready crops and just that farmers have a zero tolerance for weeds, even along their borders of their crops and roads. Those are killing off the, um, food plants, uh, the leaf food for the caterpillars, and the nectar sources for the adults. Um, So that's kind of what's happening with monarchs. We don't have a lot of monarchs in Arizona. You see them, I would say, fairly rarely. We have another local butterfly that people think are monarchs, but it's the queen butterfly danis gillipus and they have a little bit different uh color pattern so anyway that's what i wanted to say about monarchs maybe bruce has some experiences with them
2: well um i was lucky enough when i was doing my doctorate to meet lincoln brower maybe number one or maybe number two person in the world that worked on monarch migration he was one of the founders or he one of the group of people that found the places in mexico where they overwinter and unique individual and we we talked a lot in the 70s over beer and other things about monarch butterflies and then um i came to uh, kind of lost track and i came to work for game and fish and i was a friend of mine and i were selected by the by the federal government to go down to mexico and evaluate some monarch butterfly conservation programs that the Fish and Wildlife Service was funding through their Friends Across Borders program. So we went down, we saw them, and Steve's right. It's incredible, the numbers. I mean, they're, they're not just in one small area, a few acres. They are in disjunct areas of, a, of similar habitat type. Right. And these big, I, I think they're fir trees, if I'm not mistaken, Steve. Are they pine or fir?
1: They're a fir. It's called OML fir, yeah.
2: Okay. And these fir trees, and when it gets warm enough, that you can see them flash, and all sorts of really cool stuff. And certainly the har and certainly the harvest of timber and monetary issues in Mexico are a significant problem with monarch butterfly populations. That we there's I don't know if there's any way you can get control over that. It's you know Mexico is a place that I used to love to go, and now I don't go there as much as I used to. I'm, you know, afraid of, of going to a lot of places in Mexico. There was it so though in Mexico we don't have any control. As Steve indicated the pesticides and the road control and that but the question I had for Steve, there are I've I've gone to California and, and visit Pismo Beach and some other places where there's large pop not large okay not large compared to Mexico, but significant populations of monarch butterflies that overwinter in the eucalyptus trees there. Are those west of the Mississippi? Are they specific to something? And I've heard rumors that their populations aren't doing all that. At least the overwintering counts are going way down in in California, monarch butterflies also.
1: Right, that's true. There is a smaller western population of monarchs that's pretty distinct, and it doesn't go to Mexico, but they go along the California coast. And I remember as a teenager going to places like Pacific Grove, California, which I think they called Butterfly Town, USA. And monarchs were, you know, just festooned in, uh, usually, like Bruce said, like, excuse me, eucalyptus trees, that sort of thing. And there are a couple other places in California where they go. But over the decades, <clears throat> conservation organizations like the Xerxes Society, which is a premier. Organization for Invertebrate Conservation based in Portland, Oregon. Uh, Other organizations like the Pollinator Partnership and NAPSE, the North American Pollinator Protection Campaign. Those folks have all been monitoring monarchs and they have been declining its habitat loss and perhaps uh, pesticides and diseases as well.
2: One thing um, that your listeners could do is they can they can they can plant plants that attract both monarch butterflies and um, queen butterflies um, there's a there's a fairly large uh, shopping center just north of me on I-17 I- at Cave Creek Carefree Highway and they originally went in and they po- they populated their landscape with thousands well, hundreds if not thousands of of desert uh, milkweed small desert milkweed plants. And for years they took very good care of them. And I could find monarchs and lots and lots and lots of queens, but a fair number of monarchs there also, feeding on them and laying their eggs, and then the, the caterpillars would feed there, and then you'd have the, the chrysalises and, and you get the adults that would hatch out. And I, I don't know why they stopped doing that. I maybe they ran out of money for for, for, for doing the landscaping and that. But if you can just plant enough of those in your yard, five or six of those, I've got five or six in my front yard and do pretty darn good as far as bringing in butterflies.
1: Yeah, Bruce raises a good point. Um, I would also add for your listeners that you can go to a website called Monarch Watch founded by uh, a colleague of mine, Dr. Chip Taylor, a retired professor from the University of Kansas in Lawrence. And you can find sources on there where you can buy either plants or seeds. And there are probably at least five or six other nonprofit organizations that are selling seeds or plants of various milkweeds. So you can find out what milkweeds are native to your area and get them and plant them and they come. For people in Arizona, there's a little composite that's called um, floss flower. I'm forgetting the name of the innocent species for it right now, but it is a magnet for male uh, queen butterflies, Janus gillipus. So if you plant that in your yard, you can literally, when it blooms, have dozens or hundreds of our native uh, monarch relative, the queen butterfly. Uh, so that's a cool plant to t- try
0: I uh, I'm always working on on my little one acre yard here in, in my habitat uh, to to make it, you know, more wildlife friendly. And it's I, I just I really get a kick out of it. Um, of course, I mean, I live in these you know, monotypic ponderosa pine forests, so there's not a lot of diversity going on here. But but I'm doing my best with what I got. And, uh, you know, through programs like Garden for Wildlife with National Wildlife Federation, you know, you can get these certifications for your yard and put up a sign you can be proud of. But one of those I've seen floater, floating around is a, is a monarch waypoint. Um, and I, I haven't done that yet, but I, I really I, I'm going to be looking into it this spring. I don't know if we have any native milkweeds in, in this habitat or are up here near Flagstaff, but, but I certainly hope so, because I'd, I'd love to put that sign out there, too
2: there's a place called Spadefoot nurseries in tucson that will be able to supply you with with that those type of plants for a specific type of animals or invertebrates
0: awesome thank you i'll have a look at that well um we have been we're over an hour uh and one I, one thing i just love about interesting people like you is that yeah i feel like we could just go all day long um and I mean, I, I say that a lot, but boy, do I mean it in this instant, because I have so many questions for you two. Um, and unfortunately, we're just not going to get to all of them. But, you know, to kind of wrap this up, I, I would ask, you know, any any main points that, that I've missed or that either of you would like to cover. and And then ultimately. You know, for, for folks that, you know, maybe this is the, the first time they've thought about this and then they're developing an interest, you know, what, what are ways that they can get out there and explore the the great wide world of insects? Um and, and how, how how can folks advocate um to you know perhaps ask for more stringent regulations on pesticides and, and things of this nature, things that might help this this big big issue of of decline that we've talked about.
1: Yeah, I mean, for my part, I would tell people to watch pollinators. They're they're better than uh, reality television, um, and we should plant for wildlife. So you can go to native plant nurseries. Uh, one problem with buying plants from a big box store is that they don't tell you that a lot of times there are systemic internal insecticides that are in those plants. So you can actually spend a fortune on plants for a cool pollinator garden. You plant it, the pollinators come and you're poisoning them. So you should really be careful. And I would suggest going to native nurseries, use native plants. Um, A lot of the double roughly weird looking flowers that you can get at a big box stores are hybrids. And uh, not because plant breeders are trying to be mean, but they're selecting for characters that we like, uh, big, colorful, showy flowers. So they're inadvertently breeding out floral scent. When was the last time you smelled a, a fragrant rose? Or uh, literally the plant can have no nectar or pollen, so you're doing no good for the plant and you're not feeding pollinators. Um and and obviously, try to use few or no insecticides. I mean, if you have to spray something, I mean, you can use safer soap, like a soap. Or if you have to use an insecticide, spray it at night when the pollinators aren't active. Uh, things like that. Even herbicides. Um, I'm working with a national group that is studying the microbiome, the helpful bacteria and fungi in pollinator guts. Um, adult bees and larval guts. And we just found out that where the industry, the chemical industry, has said for decades that, hey, herbicides are perfectly safe for bees. We've tested them in the field, in the lab. They don't hurt bees. Well, kind of, sort of. They don't hurt adult bees, but herbicides, if they're brought back to the nest of these ground or twig nesting solitary bees, are knocking out the critical bacteria and fungi in their guts. Um, So they can be having sublethal or outright mortality there. And that's something we never, ever thought about uh, before. Um, The last thing I'll mention before I turn it over to Bruce is that you can not only plant for wildlife with native plants that are adapted to your local conditions, you can take some old scrap lumber and drill holes in it. About seven to eight millimeters in Arizona is about the right diameter, and go in about three to five inches for a very long drill bit. Don't come out the back, make it a hole, not a tunnel, and you can nail these up onto a a shed or under the eaves of your house, and in the spring and the fall, you'll attract a lot of uh, mostly leafcutter bees, but really fun bees that are natives and you can, you and your family can watch them and have a lot of enjoyment and you're providing habitat to increase the populations.
2: Well, I, I, as a, I guess an old bureaucrat and biologist, I look at these things from 30,000 feet (laughs) and, and, and I'm always happy that we have someone like Steve on the ground looking and actually on the ground doing things, but Certainly the number one thing in my mind is to join a conservation organization, because as individuals, we have very little pull, unless you've got a lot of coin or some you know a congressman or something, and conservation organizations are the ones that go out there and they put, they put pressure on government, they help develop land management plans, they do all these things that it takes a lot of brains and a lot of effort to do, so I think that I, I'm members of several. A partner with a landowner, if you know of a person that has a lot of land. I'm uh, p- partnering with a fellow right now in southeastern Arizona. He's got 60,000 acres, and he loves bees. He loves ferrets. He loves prairie dogs. He loves fox. He loves frogs. He loves, frogs, he loves everything. And with Game and Fish and a little bit of help from me and, and Steve and, and, and other bee people out east, he's, he's doing a heck of a job managing 60,000 acres, and he's a cattle rancher. Uh, plant your property i put i've got i can't think of the i can't think of the one plant steve because i don't know plants that well but i've got lots of brittle i've got i've got you know michael's got an acre i would i would kill for an acre i have this little 70 foot by 110 foot thing in in, in phoenix but i got tons of brittle bush i got tons of glow mallow i've got um, acatillo and all sorts of things in my front yard. Got a little bit of grass in my backyard because my wife says without grass it gets too darn hot in the summer, so we got a little bit of grass in the backyard. <laughs> but I've got another, but I put in four or five bee specific plants that I can't remember what the name of them are. But it's you'll be absolutely, I get hundreds of non stinging, non detrimental native bees in my yard when these things are flowering and how they find it, I don't know. I mean, I put two of these. I want to, no, I can't think of the name. Anyway, I put two of these beautiful plants in my backyard and the first year they flowered, bang, I got bees here and I got walls in my yard. I don't know how they can see it. Anyway. um, (laughs) If there's something that y'all can do about population growth, that would be nice. (laughs) You know, We can go back to the old 1960s with a ZPG zero population growth would be nice, but uh, Arizona, we're, we're expanding like crazy. And then, Any way we can manage that expansion to the benefit and not the detriment of our wild lands certainly is is going to be beneficial to all these pollinators at the same time. So, yeah, you know, you just, you have to, you can't sit back and think the problem's going to go away and that we're going to do good things for pollinators in the the future uh, unless you get involved.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, um, man, you know, I... This has been a super fascinating talk for me, and I thank you both for that. But honestly, I I can't help but feel like there's just so much that we didn't touch on. Um, but you know that that is that that is what this is, I suppose. But listen, thank you both so much. Thank you for for working through those technical issues to get started today. And um, yeah, I just yeah I don't know what to say. So such fascinating stuff, Bruce. Did you have one more thing?
2: I got one thing. If if you haven't, I. I... I bought Steve's book, his new book, What Bees Know, and then and then, I, then he gave me a copy. So I wish he would have given me the copy a little earlier. But I, but I read it, and it's also on – but I have Audible, so I, I have it on audiobooks right now, and I'm listening to it because I find that's better. But if you want to know more about bees, get Steve's book. It, it's absolutely amazing. And if, you get, if you're out there in the booties hiking around and you see this huge colony or this area with little bitty holes in it and a lot of bees buzzing around, Get a hold of Steve or me. Steve Badly needs those for the type of research that he does, finding those colonies, and and, then you can help research. Just don't damage them. Just let Steve and I know about them.
1: Yeah, thanks for the the book plug there, Bruce. Yeah, I wrote this bee, uh, this book, my latest book, I've done 10 books, but my latest book is called What a Bee Knows, and it was published by Island Press, a prominent environmental publisher in Washington, D.C. Came out March of last year. Uh, and yeah, as Bruce said, it's available in several formats. Okay, so if you see one of these big nesting aggregations in your yard or out in the desert, a colleague of mine, um, a postdoc at Cornell, Jordan Kuhneman, has just created this phenomenal website, and it's, it uses iNaturalist as the engine, but you can look it up, just Google it. It is GNB the letters.org gnb.org. So people all over the world are reporting where they find these nesting bees. And I've slowly been putting in ones that I found in Chile and November and in Arizona. So you can add a photo and you can have experts jump on and say, Hey, we know what that bee is. So yeah, gnb.org. I would also, uh, Mention a couple of others, like a really good one is called Bug Guide. So you can go to Bug Guide if you're a photographer like Bruce or you've just got, you know, people argue about cameras. I say the best camera is the one you have with you. So if you've got your cell phone camera, snap a picture, upload it to Bug Guide, and literally within minutes or hours, you'll have people, amateurs and professionals, jumping on letting you know what you've uh, photographed. So there's such fantastic things that you can do now online and, and be connected. And as Bruce said, please become a think about becoming a citizen scientist or at least joining some kind of conservation organization. You won't regret it.
0: Awesome. Well, Bruce, thank you for mentioning Steven's book and Stephen, please forgive me for letting that fall through the cracks. I apologize. Um, are you gentlemen okay with me, including your email addresses in the show notes? I don't think you're going to get swamped, but in case folks do run across some of those colonies, they, it might be helpful to you.
1: Yeah, sure. I, I definitely do that. I, I live by email. I don't, I don't tweet or Facebook or Instagram, but uh, I do a lot of emails
0: outstanding all right well i'll make sure include those and uh, i just want to say thank you one more time this has been a fascinating talk and i appreciate your time today
1: well thank you it's been a
0: blast you're more than
2: welcome thank you michael
0: thank you gentlemen what did i tell you stephen and bruce are two of the most fascinating fellas that i have sat down and spoke with and and i am fortunate to get to sit down and speak with a lot of interesting folks that that world of insects it just blows me away in fact it, it's so overwhelming uh, you know being a person who has gone down so many rabbit holes uh, with different organisms um, just purely based on fascination and, and a, a lust for learning. I've, I've studied herps, reptiles and amphibians, that is. I've studied even crayfish, um, mammals, birds, freshwater fishes. Yeah, I've done it all, but I never even dunked a toe into the world of insects just because it's so big. And I'm a very type A personality. I'm not someone to to do anything lightly and I knew if I jumped into that world oh my gosh I'd spend the rest of my life in it so so I've avoided it but that doesn't mean I am not curious and fascinated you know by these uh, amazing organisms so um with that I have some very exciting news coming up for for you in the next episode regarding this podcast I'm not quite ready to share it yet but it is exciting and I cannot wait to share it with you few changes are coming. So with that, I will see you again in two weeks. Don't forget this show is made possible by the Arizona Wildlife Federation. It is our 100th birthday this year. So 100 years of doing conservation in the state of Arizona. We consider ourselves very pragmatic, science-based organization. And uh, yeah, we, we work hard for public lands our wildlife and your access to all of it so if you want to support that work you can do so by clicking the link in the show notes going to our website exploring deciding if you want to be a supporter and if you do you will get our quarterly glossy magazine that is full of uh just great stories information and news regarding arizona's wildlife and public lands so we'll see you again in two weeks thanks for listening